Hey, I'm so glad that you're here with us. If we haven't met, my name is Mark, and I get the privilege of serving on team here at the Exchange as the young adult pastor. And I'm so grateful uh, that you joined us tonight. Tonight, we are closing out uh, a series, a collection that we've been in called Run For It. And I've just been loving this series and what God's been speaking to us uh, just simply out of two verses. We've been unpacking two verses found in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to spend our time in that text today. But in week one, if you missed it, uh, let me just give you a little recap. I preached from this idea, running with purpose. Running with purpose. And the idea in that talk was that each and every one of us, we need to be reminded God didn't just call us to go through this life. He's called us to run with purpose. And that purpose is to point people to Jesus. It's to point people to Jesus. And last week, let me tell you, if you weren't here, my friend, Pastor Ricky, he brought a word for us right here at the exchange. And he spoke from this idea, have a plan and run the plan. Have a plan and run the plan. And Pastor Ricky spoke uh, and shared his heart based off the fact that each and every one of us, as we run the race, we need to understand that doesn't mean it's a smooth race. As we run the race, we're going to encounter challenge and difficulty and hardship. But friends, we're not called to focus on the hardship. We're called to focus on the one that's faithful through our hardship. And that's Jesus. And I've been so blessed by that talk. And if you missed any of those weeks or uh, either of those weeks, I would just encourage you to go back to our podcast. Uh, you can find it on any podcast platform and tune in for one of those messages. But today, uh, I'm excited to preach. And we're going to spend some time uh, in Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to look at those two verses. I'm going to read them now. And if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open it up. If you use your iPhone, I guess that's okay. Um, but the verses will be... On the screen, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, the author, he writes this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run. Somebody say run. Let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. And we do this. I don't want you to miss this. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. Today, I'm excited. We're going to speak from this idea, where are your eyes? Where are your eyes? I'm so excited to preach this message because you're not just hearing from me. Uh, we're going to have some of our team tag team preach with me and bring the word of God. We're going to share the stage and share the message. And I'm excited to introduce you to some of the team. James Patterson, our discipleship leader, is going to help me bring the word today. James leads discipleship here at the exchange along with Pastor Jeannie, but James is going to help me tag team this. And I'm also going to have our worship leader, Caroline Banegas, bring the message today. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. In chapter 14 of the book of Matthew, we find Jesus' disciples in a bit of trouble. The 12 disciples were followers and friends of Jesus who went with him everywhere that he went during his public time of ministry while he was here on the earth. 
We're gonna pick up in verse 25 where Jesus had gone away by himself to pray and his disciples had gone out in the boat ahead of him. A great storm had picked up on the water, sweeping up the disciples and their boat along with it. Peter was one of the men on the boat. Matthew 14, verses 25 through 31 say this. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. And so Jesus said, come. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? You of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did Peter doubt? Well, what I want you to know is, is that Peter was walking with Jesus. Peter was close with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He talked with Jesus, lived with Jesus, cried with Jesus. Jesus looked at Peter in the eyes, pointed to him and said, follow me. And Peter did. No questions asked. So why did Peter doubt? Well, don't we? Would we doubt if we walked with Jesus, ate with Jesus, lived with Jesus, talked with Jesus, cried with Jesus? Don't we, in a different way than the disciples, do all of these things today, right now, and yet still experience our own crippling waves of doubt? I live with Jesus. I talk with Jesus. I cry a lot with Jesus. So why do I still doubt? I remember several years ago, my mother was in her early 40s and while I was in my junior year of high school, my father called me and said, I don't want to alarm you. It looks like everything is going to be okay, but your mother's in the hospital. She had a heart attack. Her heart stopped twice in the ambulance and she was almost pronounced dead. Now, I'm the oldest of four siblings, so what I had to do was round up the three younger ones, keep it together somehow, and make my way over towards the hospital to see my mother and my father waiting for us there. But I was struggling with a lot of doubt, a lot of confusion, a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, a lot of distrust. God, how could you let this happen to my mother? She's only 44 years old. She has a husband and four young children. A heart attack, God? She had a heart attack at the age of 44. I doubt it a lot. We all have situations and scenarios where we find ourselves doubting the one who holds us in his hands. I was a believer at this time. I knew Jesus loved Jesus. But despite his perfect track record that he had shown me before, I found myself doubting his abilities 
to keep my mother safe. And that's where we find Peter doubting his God's abilities. Let's go back and remember the timeline of events. A big storm comes up over the water engulfing the disciples and their boat in the middle of the night. Their savior and their friend comes across the waves and Peter hears Jesus call out to him. And Peter goes and for just a moment, Peter walks on the water. Peter, a sinful, simple human being like you and like me, walks on the water defies logic and science and gravitational expectation and literally walks on the water towards Jesus. But it's only then after this miraculous feat do we see him pull away from Jesus and focus his attention on the situation before him. And only then does he begin to sink when he takes his eyes off of Jesus. Here's what else I want you to understand tonight. The storm was always there. The storm was always there. The wind and the waves did not suddenly and violently pick up when Peter doubted and looked away. The storm was the reality of Peter's situation before Jesus ever walked onto the scene. The storm was not the cause of Peter's turmoil in this moment. His doubt was. The storm was not the consequence of Peter taking his eyes off of his savior. His sinking was. The storm was not the ripple effect of Peter stepping outside of his comfort zone and onto the waves. The storm was already there. And not only was the storm already there, but Peter knew it was there too. It's not like as soon as he stepped on the water, that's when he suddenly realized the waves and the wind roaring around him. It wasn't a surprise to Peter, and it wasn't a surprise to Jesus either. It was Jesus who in the middle of the storm beckoned to Peter, his follower, his disciple, and told him to come, commanded him to be bold in his faith and to trust him as his Lord and his Savior. How many times has Jesus asked you to be bold in your faith? How many times has he called you out on the roughest of waters? Did it occur to you afterward that there was a storm? No, it was already there. And just like Peter, you knew it was there. Would it have been such a great test of your faith if the water had been still? When Peter turned his eyes to the uncertainty and unsteadiness of his surroundings, he found himself sinking beneath the weight of them. But when Peter had his eyes on Jesus, he was able to do impossible things. Keeping our eyes on Jesus doesn't get rid of the storm. It keeps us afloat in the midst of it. Keeping our eyes on Jesus doesn't get rid of the storm. It keeps us afloat in the midst of it. Jesus does not suspend the storm as a looming threat above our heads should we disobey and turn away. And he doesn't eliminate the storm altogether either. Jesus does not promise to wipe away all of our problems as a response to our obedience. But what he does promise is to hold us and to keep us through all seasons, all of life's up and downs, all storms and peaceful waters, so long as we keep our eyes locked on him. And this was not Peter's first time taking his eyes off Jesus. And if you know his story, it wouldn't be his last either. But in the end, Peter was recognized for being a pillar of the Christian faith a martyr for Christ and a strong, authentic leader who learned from his mistakes and led droves of people to the feet of Jesus. 
Storms continued to come, I'm sure, physical and metaphorical, but it was Jesus who kept Peter afloat, and it was Peter who was obedient to the command to fix his eyes on Jesus. Will you be obedient to the command to fix your eyes on Jesus? It's just like we sang earlier, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. We of little faith, why do we doubt What track record is there to prove a reason to worry? Why do we so quickly forget the steadfastness of our Savior? Why are we so easily entangled by the sin that traps and the things that so quickly distract and demotivate us? Why are we surprised when storms and troubles come our way? The storm should not be the thing that frightens us. It should be our own negligence to do the one thing that's in our best interest, which is to keep our eyes on Jesus. So the question is this, where are your eyes? Are they fixated on your situation, on your turmoil or your trial? Are they fixated on the storm or on the person who's keeping you afloat in the midst of it? Thank you, Caroline. Y'all are doing great. We don't have a lot of time, so y'all are gonna have to listen faster, okay? Um, there was a man in the Bible named Saul, later became Paul. This guy, he ended up writing more than half of the New Testament books that we, that we read today. But none of that happened before he saw Jesus. See, Paul was raised in a place called Tarsus of Cilicia, and Tarsus was in, it's in modern-day Turkey right now, not today, but it was a, it was a trading town. It was a, it was a town like Athens. It was, it was a lot of learning that was happening there, and, and he, was a, he was a Jewish uh, person by heritage, but he lived in Tarsus. So what that also meant is he got Roman citizenship. And so he had everything at his feet. You know, you, you know those guys. You've been, to, you've been to school with them, right? They, they're silver spoon baby, like everything, right? There's none of you in here, right? But, but somebody around you, they just seem to have it all. He was trained under Gamaliel, who, Gamaliel, who was like the king of knowing the scripture and, and how to be the, the Jewest of Jew and be part of God's people. And, and he, was, he, was, he was crushing it. He even got papers to go kill Christians because they weren't of what the Jewish heritage had taught for, for its entire existence. The problem is the whole Jewish focus was supposed to be on the coming Messiah, and they missed it. Paul was crushing it, but he missed Jesus. He missed Jesus. You know, he had morality. He had a lot of good things going for him, but morality is only going to get you so far. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, morality may keep you out of jail, but it takes the blood of Christ to keep you out of hell. There are a lot of us in this room that I'm afraid are banking too much on our morality and not on the blood of Christ. In Acts chapter 9, he has an experience where he saw Jesus, and it reads this way, beginning in verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. 
but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you're to do. Then the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. I mean, can you imagine what that's like? You think you're crushing it for God. You're living your best life. You're going to do above and beyond what anybody else is doing. I'm going to prove that I love you so much, God, I'm going to kill people for it. It's a little ruthless. And then all of a sudden he's walking down the road and bam, he sees this light. He's blinded by the light. Long before Springsteen sang it in 73. But he's blinded by this light and all of a sudden something that's so precious to him, his eyesight, is completely taken away. Scares him to death. I mean, put yourself in his position. When, when, when God takes something of great value, but perhaps he takes something of great value in your life because he's trying to get your attention. God doesn't spend his whole life looking to take things away from you. Not every tragedy in your life is because God is trying to get your attention. Life happens. You all know that. But if you're trying to do life without Jesus... He'll do whatever is necessary to get your attention. As we pick up the story, there's a disciple named Ananias in the city of Damascus. He's a Christ follower now, and God comes to him. Jesus comes to him and says, hey, uh, there's a guy named Saul here, and he's blind, and I'm going to have you go lay your hands on him and tell you what to do. And Ananias is like, the guy that's killing Christians? That I am, right? Uh, you sure you know what you're doing? But, but he says, okay. And God says this in verse 15, but... The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you. Remember that. We were told that the other two men with him heard it but saw nothing. But Ananias testified that the one who appeared to you, Paul saw Jesus. The Lord who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, after this encounter with Jesus, Paul not only saw Jesus, but he saw the rest of the world through the eyes of Jesus. This event changed Paul's life. And he spent the rest of his world, the rest of his life telling the whole rest of the world how they could also see Jesus. He decided what he was going to do. He saw Jesus and carried that to the end of his life. You know, what you do with Jesus will determine what Jesus does with you. What you do with Jesus will determine what Jesus does with you. Jesus wants to speak through you. He wants to see the whole rest of the world come to him as, a, as, their, as their savior. And he wants to use you to do it. He not only wants you to see Jesus, he wants the rest of the world to see Jesus through you. But you and I have to decide what we're gonna do with that. He's not gonna force his way in. He may take some things from your life to get your attention, but he can't, he's not gonna force his way in. He wants you to see him. When you fix your eyes on Jesus, your identity in Christ will always be challenged. But don't be surprised by that. You know, there's, sometimes we think that, oh, my life is a wreck, and so I'm going to come to Jesus, and it's all going to be great. No, no, your life may still end up being a wreck. In fact, it might get messier. But the promise is you won't go through it alone. 
and your destiny has been changed. There's hope in the middle of any crisis that you can possibly go through. You won't be exempt from great sorrow or pain. You just won't be alone when it happens. You know, Paul's experience is after he met Jesus. He outlines them in 2 Corinthians. He talks about how he was, uh, how he was beaten uh, with 39 lashes, 40 minus 1. It's the same thing that the same torture Christ suffered before he went to the cross with the whips that had broken shards of glass and nails and, and, and metal in it. And they would latch onto his back and they would rip it and his flesh would come off. Happened to Paul five times. He was beaten with rods three times. He was stoned and left for dead once. He was adrift at sea. He was, he was naked and cold and hungry and without. He was in danger from the whole world around him. But Paul embraced and endured unimaginable suffering. And why? It's because he saw Jesus. Because he had seen the Savior, there's nothing that Paul could go through that would have him. He would have it. Because he had Christ in the middle of it. My greatest challenges I've ever faced in my life are long after I looked into the eyes of Jesus. And this very same thing might also happen to you. Think about it for a minute. What, what struggles have you experienced since following Jesus if you're a Christ follower? Was that hard for you to experience suffering in the midst of looking to Jesus? What, what, what perhaps did you learn through those experiences. You know, God, it's said often, but God never wastes a hurt. You know, like Paul, we must each decide where we stand with Christ before we can make a stand for Christ. Life is hard. You've got to get the foundation of Jesus Christ under you in order to endure it. You know, Jesus had to blind Paul before Paul could truly see. And when he saw all he saw, was Jesus. I remember a time in my life, as I wrap up, I, I, it was a time where I thought I was crushing it. I was working a day job. I was going to tech school in the afternoon. I was waiting tables at night. I was a server. And if you've never been a server, you are fortunate. <laughs> and, and, and I was crushing it. And then I got done with tech school and I quit waiting tables. Woo! And I went to a day job. I had what they call a career during the daylight hours. It was new to me. But for the last two years before that, my entire social life was wrapped up in going out and doing things that I shouldn't do. And the very first day that I no longer was in that position, my phone never rang again. Everyone in my life left me. The next week, my car was repossessed. I'm thinking, God, what are you doing? Somebody stole me a stolen car, but that's a whole other story. But God took away all these things that I thought was making my identity. And I went back to church because it was the only thing that never left me down. What needs to be removed from your life so that you can see and fix your eyes on Jesus? And then the question is, will you remove it or will Jesus have to? You know, I'm going to close with this. And this whole world is, is consumed with um, self. It's the look at me syndrome. You know, the most often taken picture is a selfie. That's where we're at. Instead of looking to Jesus, we're looking at us. 
And we're wrapped up in this world where we're trying to get the whole rest of the world to look at us. And it's the very thing Jesus doesn't want. He wants everybody to look at him. The devil's using vanity and our own insecurities against us. We want so badly for the rest of the world to see us. And then we spend the rest of our lives wrapped up in the anxiety about what they see when they do see us. It will wreck you. And it will destroy your testimony for Christ. True freedom from that bondage only comes when we fix our eyes on Jesus. And when we do, the world around us will also see him as they look at us. There are people in our lives who are looking for Jesus, even if they don't know it's Jesus they're looking for. Ecclesiastes even confirms this, that God put eternity in the human heart. But for many of us, the reason they can't fix their eyes on Jesus is because we're standing in the way. They're fixing their eyes on us. You know, the only person that ever talked about what Paul did before he met Jesus was Paul. And here we are some 2,000 years later, and the entire world is talking about what Paul did after he saw Jesus. So the question we are left with is, where are your eyes? Come on, would you help me encourage James and Caroline? You know, with a message like this, um, I always want us to be practical. I always want us to be practical. When we talk about where are your eyes, it's a question we all ought to ask ourselves. But I think attached to that question, there's a, a practical step that we need to take. And some of you, you identify with the story of Peter. Maybe you found yourself in a time in your life where you were experiencing hardship or difficulty, and the storms of your life were overwhelming. And instead of focusing on your Savior, you focused on your circumstance. There's been moments in my life that I've fallen in that camp. Maybe you identify with someone like Paul. You've got something or someone obstructing your view of Jesus. Simply today, I could just stand up here and say, no, you need to set your eyes on Jesus. But I believe in this room, some of us, yes, we all actually, in fact, need to set our eyes on Jesus. But some of us, we need to deal with the thing that's obstructing our view of Jesus. We need to acknowledge that thing, that person, that idea. We need to acknowledge it. We need to remove it. And we need to reset our eyes on Jesus. You know, as I was thinking about this talk today, I really didn't have much planned. I, I was praying a lot about this, but the Lord just made it so clear to me. When you look throughout the Old Testament, you see so many men and women who took their eyes off of Jesus. But in God's kindness and his grace, he redeemed them and he restored them. I just feel like in the room today, some of us, we, we just feel so deflated. We feel so convicted. Maybe you don't feel convicted, you feel condemned. Because you know you're that person, you've taken your eyes off of Jesus. Can I tell you, there's a God in heaven who is kind, he's merciful, he's gracious, and he says it's never too late to turn back to me. 
The Bible says in Romans chapter two, verse four, that it's God's kindness that leads man to repentance. It's only God's kindness that leads man to repent, to acknowledge their sin and be able to turn back to him. I think about people in the Old Testament like Samson. Many of you know Samson in Judges 16, we read about this moment where Samson, he meets a woman named Delilah, but let me back up. Judges 16, we pick up and we know that God has a special thing that he wanted to do through this man. God had promises that he made to Samson to do mighty things. But Samson, instead of setting his eyes on the promises of God, he set his eyes on a person. Her name was Delilah. You know the song, Hey there, Delilah, what's it like while we are sinning? I just think so many of us today, we have invited someone into our life that's obstructing our view of Jesus. And instead of walking down the path that God has for you, it's leading you now down the path of destruction. I'm gonna just be honest. I'm glad this is the end of the year, our last gathering. Some of you need to break up with that, go- that guy or that girl. They're keeping you from walking in everything that God has for you in this life. See, this didn't only happen to Samson. I, I think about um, this moment that we read in uh, 1 Samuel. We hear about a man by the name of David. David, he was a mighty man of God. Scripture says in 1 Samuel 18, I believe it is, that he's one day uh, in the middle of the spring, Scripture says, where all of the leaders of God's army were sent to go out with the rest of the troops. But David, he stayed behind, Scripture says. He stayed behind and he was isolated. He was all by himself. And the Scriptures tell us that one night he gets up out of bed, He goes to the rooftop of his palace and he was looking in the distance. And as he was looking in the distance, a woman by the name of Bathsheba catches his attention. He sets his eyes on this woman and David, he desired to be with this woman. So he does whatever it takes to be with her. He sleeps with her, she ends up getting pregnant. And what happens? To cover up his sin, he ends up having her husband killed. I just wonder how many of us, we have not only invited someone into our life that's leading us down the path of destruction, we're so fixated and focused on this person and it's causing us not only to live in sin, but it's leading us to do things that are irrational, things that we said we would never do. And all along, We're losing sight of what it is that God wanted to do through us. Think about Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 18. There's a moment where Saul, he's the the king of Israel. He's leading the people of Israel to do amazing things for God. But here came a man named David. And David... He was increasing in influence, scripture says, and the people of Israel started to fall in love with him. And the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 18, that David, or excuse me, Saul's heart became hardened towards David. And as he saw David's influence increasing, 
he never stopped fixing his eye on him. And that led to his destruction. See, what I know to be true is some of us in the room today, we're not just living in this place where we've got something obstructing our view of Jesus, but we've got comparison in our heart, and it's pulling us away from the race that God has called us to. And you're so focused on the race that someone else is running, but friend, you're being pulled off the race that God's called you to. It's causing you to miss out on Jesus. See, the thing about comparison is comparison kills contentment. And in that moment, we see comparison didn't only kill contentment, it now held this man in contempt. Some of you are so angry, so hardened towards someone else. Because instead of focusing on your race, you're focused on their race. The question we ask today is, where are your eyes? Are your eyes on your race or are your eyes on their race? Are your eyes on your circumstance or your savior? Are your eyes on your past? Or your eyes on what God wants to do in your present? Just wanna encourage some of you. I feel like the word going into 2024 for some of you is the past is the past. What matters now is the present and the future. You can't run focused on the past. You can't run looking back at the past. Let the past be the past. Friends, focus on the present because it's there we find Jesus. It's there we find Jesus. The application for today is yes, where are your eyes? What's blocking your view of Jesus? But more importantly, you need to put a line in the sand and you need to break up with that thing or that person that's obstructing your view of Jesus. So I wanna create a space for us right now to just sit in this truth that you and I, we've taken our eyes off of Jesus. But today, he's calling us to turn back 